It is good to see everyone here tonight. And if you would, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John and the fourth chapter. John 4, and we will begin reading in verse 40. And if you could please stand when you get there. <clears throat> Beginning in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 40. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. <clears throat> now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then, when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. For they also went unto the feast. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him, that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house this is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. I confess my need to you tonight. ask that you would help us, Lord, that your word would do its work, Lord, among all of us. And... Lord, we thank you that you have put a love in our heart for your word. Thank you for these dear people and those online as well. Lord, may you be glorified, magnified, praised, adored tonight, and may your saints' children be edified. In Jesus' name, amen. If I had a title... For this, it would simply be from verse 50, thy son liveth, thy son liveth. <clears throat> when Luke wrote the book of Acts, he started his address to Theophilus with a reference to his former treatise. This would have been a reference to his earlier work, the gospel according to Luke. And in Luke I mean, in Acts, Luke says this in Acts 1. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Luke states that this former treatise that he made, was of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. I think that we could certainly apply that statement to all four of the Gospels in our Bibles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record and establish their testimonies of all 
that Jesus began both to do and to teach. We know that we don't have all that could have been said about Jesus, but we have all that we need for life and godliness. The Apostle John says near the end of his gospel, and there are many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. <laughs> Amen. I was just thinking about all the books that are already written. And just them, if they were of all that Jesus had done, what a wonder that would be, but this would be even more. So we have the truth truly, but not exhaustively. And the Gospels are filled with the truth of Jesus' teaching and his works. This is essential for our faith and walk as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have for us recorded in the Gospels both the doctrine of Jesus Christ and his miracles. And both are important, extremely, supremely important. And they both testify to the glorious person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' teachings and his works reveal the deity, reveal to men the deity and power of the God-man. Every gospel record that we have comes to us with the mighty witness of both Jesus' words and his works. And the account that we have before us today of this nobleman who comes to Jesus to seek healing for his dying son does not fail to give us the same witness of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So we'll pick it up in verse 43. Now, after two days, he departed thence and went into Galilee. He being Jesus there. Jesus had been in Sychar, a city of Samaria, where a woman that he spoke to at Jacob's well was gloriously saved. And we know from that account that many more believed on Jesus. There was revival in Samaria. And we know from John 4.40 that we started out our reading with that the, the Samaritans didn't want Jesus to leave. They had been saved, and they wanted to know more about Jesus. They wanted to know more of his precious word. Their cry was more, of, more, more about Jesus. They wanted to be with the Christ who saved them. So they besought Christ to tarry with them. So Jesus stayed with them for two days. After this, we find that he departed from Samaria and went into Galilee. Now, this was the year, uh, area where Jesus lived many years. This is where he grew up. Judah would have been the southern province in Israel, and Galilee was a northern province in Israel. <clears throat> and Galilee was Jesus' home country. He was, of course, as we know, born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. Nazareth was his home prop proper, but Galilee was his backyard. Then, in reading again in 43, but going on to 44, Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Now, this is a perplexing verse. It's even more because I can hardly say it. <clears throat> but commentators seem to stumble of, over it. They are not sure what to do with this verse. And I don't mean that negatively, but it's just true. Not that I have a corner on that. It seems to be a paradox or even a contradiction. contradiction. It is not so much that the verse itself is perplexing, but where it is located. Why is it here? 
And he went into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. <clears throat> Did Jesus say this at this time? Or is John inserting and applying this testimony of Jesus to this time and these events? Either way, whether Jesus spoke this proverb at this time or John, by the inspiration of the Spirit, has applied it here, the word for connects this testimony of Jesus directly with his coming into Galilee. So let me read it again. Now, after two days, he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. The word for brings an inseparable connection between these two verses. Jesus is now leaving those, who's, those whom he has ministered to in Samaria. And he's now coming into his homeland of Galilee, where he, by his own testimony, will not be honored. Now, it seems to me that the import of this verse is saying that a prophet hath no honor in his own country, so that is exactly where Jesus is going. He is going right into Galilee. Jesus was going to go where he was not honored. Now, that opposes all human reasoning. <laughs> Why would we want to go where we are not honored? Why not stay in Samaria? That's where the revival is happening. <clears throat> Perhaps, too, it might have done a better good to have stayed there. Perhaps the time and energy spent in Samaria would have brought more fruit and greater returns on the gospel than now it did in Galilee. Much of what Jesus did and said was not according to our natural or carnal reasoning. Jesus did not go into Galilee to be honored. He went into Galilee to honor his father. Jesus is not acting independently of the Godhead. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, is filled with the Spirit empowered by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, and led by the Spirit of God. And everything that Jesus said, everything that he did, and everywhere he went was by the Holy Spirit. The truth concerning Jesus coming home to Galilee in the light of this proverb that a prophet hath no honor in his own country shows both purpose and resolve. Jesus set his face as a flint to do the Father's will. I do always those things that please my Father. Jesus did not come into Galilee to be ministered unto, but to minister to these Galileans who did not honor him. Grace doesn't come to us because we deserve it. We have done only those things which have dishonored Christ and dishonored his word. And yet, he came in mercy and love to redeem a people to himself forever. Grace and truth would now go to Galilee and meet this nobleman. Jesus had a divine appointment in Cana of Galilee with a certain nobleman. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Now we come to another perplexing verse. Yeah, I wish I could say that word better. <clears throat> no laughing from the grandkids. <clears throat> John 4.45 says, Then when he was coming to Galilee... The Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went to the feast. This, at first, seems to be another contradiction with the verse that we have just read. How do we reconcile 
that a prophet is without honor in his own country, and yet we find here that these Galileans have received him. Or as some translators say, they have welcomed him. You know, rather than being shunned here, Jesus is welcomed with open arms. Now, how do these pieces fit together? Is scripture contradicting itself? Well, we know that scripture does not contradict itself. So the problem is not with scripture, but with our understanding oftentimes of scripture. The issue isn't whether or not Jesus is received. The issue is how Jesus is received. And I believe that John gives us the key to that when he says, Then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him. And note, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. The focus of these Galileans was on the miracles that they had seen Jesus do. And we won't take time, but if we go back to chapter 1 or 2, we would see that. But they had seen the mighty miracles that Jesus did at the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And they were impressed, and their senses were stimulated, and they wanted to see more. So, how was Jesus received? Why did they receive and welcome Jesus? Did they even know who it was that they were receiving? Was their reception of Christ as when Peter declared, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God? I'm afraid not. He was received as a mighty miracle worker come home. He was their hero. Notice it was not so much what they heard Jesus say in Jerusalem that had so captured their attention. It was the miracles that they had seen that now drew them to him. The miracle worker was in town. And this was big news and all the major networks were there. Notice, <clears throat> by contrast, contrast, if you will, this reception of Jesus by the Galileans with his reception by the Samaritans in Sychar. There were no miracles done by Jesus in Samaria. Now, we know the new life that he gave is a tremendous miracle, but no visible outward miracle and yet they heard the word and believed jesus was honored in samaria his word was honored in samaria the galileans no doubt received him but did they honor him did they honor his word you can believe that Jesus can do many mighty miracles and still not honor him. Was there anything in these Galileans who seeing these miracles and yes, even being amazed by what they saw, was there not anything that attracted them to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? I really think that we have to go back to Brother Luke and what he preached he spoke of all the things that Jesus began both to do and to teach. We need both. We need both the mighty miracles and the pure doctrine of his word. I believe that this, this is why Jesus said that a prophet is without honor in his own country. His miracles were readily received, but his word were just as readily rejected. So now, if you would, in verse 46, so Jesus came into, I'm sorry, so Jesus came, yeah, into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine, <coughs> and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that 
Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So we have here this wonderful miracle and account, this wonderful account of this miracle of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the Gospel of John is the only one that records it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are silent concerning this miracle. We read in the scriptures that Jesus went about doing good. Everywhere he went, he did good to men. In his coming into this world from heaven, he came as a substitute and sacrifice for sinners. He met many needs of the people. He healed many on the way to the cross. He performed many miracles that proved not only his interest in men's souls, but also concern and involvement in their very lives and his care for their physical as well as spiritual needs. John reminds us that Cana of Galilee is where Jesus performed his first miracle, turning the water into wine at the wedding feast. And now Jesus has returned to Cana again. He's left Judea, he's left Samaria, and now Jesus is in Cana of Galilee. News must have traveled fast because the Galileans were ready to receive him. <coughs> this nobleman who lived in Capernaum, where his son now laid sick, heard that Jesus was in Cana of Galilee. Now, Cana was, Canaan was probably 15 to 20 miles, as I understand it, from Capernaum. But this, this father was desperate for his son. We read that this boy was at the point of death. The father didn't know how much longer his son would even be alive. Death was close. And every moment that his son was alive was precious to him. When the father heard that Jesus was in Cana, he knew he must get to Jesus. So this nobleman left Capernaum and came to Jesus in Cana, and he besought Jesus that he would come to Capernaum and heal his son. This was more important to this father than anything else right now. In times of affliction, and especially when we are in extreme affliction, our perspective of this world can change. Life can get sober very quickly. Values are reexamined. Priorities are reorganized. Friends, this father had great need. And we read all through the Gospels of many who came to Jesus for healing, sometimes for themselves and sometimes for someone else. But either way, they all came to Jesus out of great need. Their need drove them to Jesus. And we could say, blessed is the need that drives us to Christ. Blessed is the affliction or the sickness, or the sorrow, or whatever case it may be, if it drives us to Jesus, we could count it as a blessing. Great need drove this man to leave his family, and even more to leave his dying son, whom he may never see again, to find Jesus. One need that we all share is this. We are all sinners who need a Savior. We do not frown on any who look to Christ for healing, but the greatest need of man is the healing of his sin-sick soul. Are we as anxious and desperate to get to Jesus concerning the condition of our souls as his father was for his son? Jesus rebuked the scribes and Pharisees. Who accused him of eating with publicans and sinners, he told them, They that are whole have no need for a physician, but they that are sick. I, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
Jesus makes a clear point to these Pharisees. He tells them basically that it is pointless for someone who is well physically to go to the doctor. Those who are well do not need the physician. Who needs the physician? The sick do. And Jesus said this, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The, the scribes and Pharisees couldn't have missed the point here. Jesus was telling them that just as the well person doesn't need a doctor, so the person that is righteous in their own eyes will see no need of a savior. Jesus tells them plainly, I didn't come to call the righteous. I did not come to call the self-righteous. I did not call to come to call those who already saw themselves as righteous. Thankfully, he takes even those and changes them. <laughs> I came to call sinners to repentance. I came to call the sin-sick soul to the great physician, to himself. This is our need. This is the need of the hour. I know I'm preaching to the choir here. But do we know Jesus? Do you know Jesus tonight? How extreme is your case? How desperate are you to be delivered from your sin? We could easily say ours. How deep does our sin go? Are we righteous enough in our own works to think that we are okay with God? Are we doing so well that we do not need Christ, the great physician? <clears throat> great need drove this nobleman to Christ. Saved or unsaved, converted or unconverted, do we have great need tonight? Until we see our sin for what it is, until we see the con true condition of our sin-sick soul, until we see our great need for the great physician, we will not come to Christ. So this nobleman has traveled from Capernaum and has found Christ in Cana of Galilee. And he has besought Christ to now go back with him to Capernaum and heal his son. This man, this father, has besought Christ. Friends, he's begging. He is pleading with Christ, come down and heal my son, for he is at the point of death. This is all that the father knows to do. He is not fancy or brilliant in his speech. He is not trying to impress Christ. Jesus, come down and heal my son. The whole passage of this account is a wonderful lesson of prayer. And this is prayer. This is importunate. I don't know if I said that right. <clears throat> prayer. The best way to approach Christ is to come to him as we are, poor, destitute, empty, beggars, who have nothing, but we're coming to him who has everything. And then we read John 4, 48. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Now, this is startling. Why would Jesus answer him in such a way? Was such a response necessary? This man has come from a far distance. His son is at the point of death. He's not commanding Jesus. He's asking. He is coming to Jesus out of great need and extremity. 
He is begging Jesus to come and heal his son. And Jesus says, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Jesus could have gone with this man. He could have gone with him and touched his son, and his son would have been healed. And I'm sure the family would have been thankful and grateful because they heard the sermon a few weeks ago. And surely they would have thanked Jesus, and then Jesus would have been on his way, going about, doing good. But that was not enough in this case. That would not do. Jesus loved this man. He loved him, and in loving him, he spoke to a need greater than the condition of his own son, who was at the point of death. This rebuke had purpose. Jesus' word has purpose. He says himself, my word will not return unto me void. It accomplishes the purpose that I send it, where I send it. This nobleman that came to Jesus had himself a great spiritual need, and Jesus knew it. And before Jesus would speak to the need of this father for his son, Jesus would first speak to the great spiritual need that this man had in his own soul. I believe that this statement that Jesus made, except ye see signs and wonders ye will not believe, is both a rebuke, and a call to faith. It is a rebuke and a call to faith. First, let's look at the rebuke. I think that there is now a crowd around Jesus and this nobleman. I believe that there were many present, for they all wanted to see another sign. Remember, these Galileans have welcomed Jesus. They're anticipating a show, and they didn't want to miss any of the action. They are waiting on the next miracle for Jesus to perform. This nobleman wants Jesus to go back to Capernaum with him and heal his son. And instead of, Je instead of doing this, Jesus rebukes him. In fact, I think that although Jesus is mainly speaking to this nobleman, I think that he includes all there in this rebuke. Listen to these words again in verse 48. <clears throat> then said Jesus unto him. Now that's singular, the nobleman. That's who he's talking to. Except ye, which is plural, which would include all those there, all of you. Except ye see signs and wonders, ye, again plural, will not believe. This was an indictment on all those present that heard these words. For Jesus, this was certainly a problem and a reality wherever he went over and over again. And this was especially true of the Jews. Jesus' rebuke strikes at the very heart of the Jewish mindset. Give us a sign. Prove that you are who you say you are. Most Jews demanded a sign or they would not believe. They refused to believe unless they were convinced by a sign. When Jesus came to, when the Jews came to Jesus back in John 6, they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then? that we may see and believe thee. What dost thou work? These are definitely ignorant, ignorant men. The natural man cannot know the things of God. They do not know who they are speaking with. 
Perform for us. Prove yourself to us. What dost thou work? As though they're in charge. What sign are you going to show us? Answer us. The problem with this expectation and demand for signs and wonders is that they do not create faith. Signs and wonders and miracles do not generate faith. They may encourage faith. They often do. But they do not create faith. Jesus did many signs and wonders and miracles, but they were still not convinced. And they were always looking for another miracle, another sign. One man said this, miracles prove doctrine, and doctrine approves the miracles. And both are held together in blessed unity in the person of Christ, who performed the works and proclaimed the words. Christianity and Christendom can only be explained by accepting the miracles which introduced them. Miracles are important, but they do not create faith. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began, both to do and to teach. Signs and wonders point to and confirm and authenticate the person and message and deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Signs and wonders are God's stamp of approval upon the ministry of Christ, but they do not produce faith. Jesus said that an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. They encourage faith, but there is no substitute for faith. There's nothing to substitute for faith. Ye must believe. The problem here isn't the signs and the wonders and the miracles. The problem is in the heart. And it's the sin of unbelief. They did not believe Jesus. They did not believe his word. They did not believe that he was who he said he was. And I believe that that is the whole point of this rebuke. Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. (coughs) The word cuts deep and it goes down and divides asunder the joints and the marrow. Ye will not believe. That was his indictment of them. And I want you to hear this rebuke. This is volitional. The rebuke carries with it a willful act and a willful decision. Friends, this is a willful choice. This is an outright refusal to believe. Without signs and wonders... We willfully choose not to believe in in him. And that's a stumbling block for the Jews. Paul declared it. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So again, verse 48. Then said Jesus unto them, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Jesus goes right to the heart of the problem. The problem is unbelief. It's there. It's ugly. It's sin. And Jesus nails it. And he reveals the sin for what it is. That's the problem, unbelief. 
It is as if Jesus had said to them, If you do not see me with your own eyes perform signs and wonders, ye will not believe that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he's flaying their hearts, opening them and revealing to them their own sin of unbelief, and they're all guilty of it. But I believe that this is also a call to faith. Perhaps a general call to the multitude, but it was efficacious for this nobleman. I think we can see that in this rebuke. <clears throat> was this a rebuke unto condemnation for all? Or was it a mirror by which one could examine himself and acknowledge his sin and turn to Christ in faith Believing on him without helps, without signs, without wonders, just the word. I think that there is a call here to put down the weapons of our warfare and believe on Christ. To repent of our stubborn rebellion and believe on him. Then we read... <clears throat> I'm sorry. My, I've had trouble with my voice all day, and I was thinking, how am I going to do this? But I think the Lord is helping me some. <clears throat> then in verse 49, it says, The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Now, if that doesn't pull on some heartstrings, <laughs> I'm not saying it's all about that, but, you know, Jesus had compassion, too. He, he healed many who never followed him, never loved him, never trusted him. Where are the other nine? Now, Jesus, in speaking with this nobleman, has rebuked all of them for their unbelief. This nobleman, having just, having just now been rebuked, goes right back to the cause for which he came to Christ. And he pleads again, Sir, come down, ere my child die. To all outward appearances, it would seem that these words of Jesus have had no effect upon this nobleman at all. And that Christ's words have again been ignored. And that there is yet no honor for Christ, even as a prophet in his own country. It would seem that this rebuke has fallen on deaf ears. Where is the call to faith? How can we even say it's effectual? Well, first... Let me say that as Christians or ministers of the gospel, ministers of the gospel, or even as pastors, we must be careful how we judge the effects of the word of God upon men's heart by outward, ex outward expressions and appearances. <clears throat> it may appear that the spirit is doing a great work in someone's life and heart, and yet there is no fruit no, no fruit, none, or the opposite could prove true. It may appear that the Spirit of the Lord is not doing anything for someone, and all looks hopeless and dead and lost, and then the light shines forth out of darkness, and life springs forth from death. I'm not saying that we should not be looking or judging in a good way, discerning, but that we should be careful and realize that we're but just men. And just because we do not see any immediate fruit does not mean that Christ is not working. And that the Holy Spirit is not convincing of sin, righteousness, and judgment. <clears throat> then said Jesus unto him, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, 
ere my child died. <clears throat> I do not think <clears throat> that we see the fruit of Christ's rebuke in verse 49. Sir, come down, ere my child die. But I would have us to notice a couple things here. Notice that this noble man is not making excuses for his sin. Notice, if you will, that he's not arguing his position with Christ. Notice, if you will, that he's not trying to debate with Christ or negotiate terms with Christ. If nothing else, it could be a silent submission to Christ's rebuke. And notice something else that I believe is important. He's still there. <laughs> He's still there. He's still with Jesus. He hasn't left. He is still engaging with Christ. One thing that I would have wanted to do, being there and being rebuked, was to walk away with my head down. Sometimes Christ holds us right where we don't want to be sometimes. He is engaging Christ. This nobleman has just come to the only one that he believes at this time can help him. And Jesus has rebuked him. Does he walk away? So much for that idea. Does he give up his cause for his son? Does he say, well, I asked Jesus for help, but he wouldn't help me? I did hear someone say that one time, and it's grieving. I did everything I knew to do. I asked God to save me. I tried to be saved, but God wouldn't save me. He let me down. Go talk to the nobleman. What did he do? This nobleman, this father, not only does he not give up and leave, but he presses Christ even further. You can almost hear him say, I will not go until you bless me. There are some things in our lives that we need to engage with Christ in and stay engaged and press him even further. <clears throat> Jesus has never failed one sinner who has truly come to him in faith and repentance. Not one. no matter how faulty their repentance, if it's from him and he brought it, he will save. This whole thought of, I tried God, but he didn't save me. We, we don't try God. We don't try him as though... We're going to see if he'll work for us. Or we'll try him to, like we would for a high school football team, we'll try out for the team. No, we don't try Christ out. We believe him. We trust him. We put ourselves on the line and roll ourselves over on Jesus. Now, please understand, or don't misunderstand what I mean by this. Doctrine is wonderful, and we need good doctrine. But doctrine itself, even good doctrine, is not what saves us. We don't cry out to doctrine to be saved. We do not cry out to faith for faith to save us. We cry out to a person. We cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's there. He's real. He's here. 
Come unto me, all that ye, all ye that laden are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Brethren, don't waste your rebuke. Sinner, don't waste your rebuke. <clears throat> Listen, even a rebuke is still the word of Christ. It is still the word of Christ, and we need all the word. Whether it be for our comfort and encouragement, our reproof and rebuke, we need the word. We ought to cherish Christ's rebukes. Uh, many times they show us how much he loves us. <clears throat> I had a call from a man one time on the phone who had been publicly rebuked, and there were a few of us that were present when he was rebuked. The rebuke was not hateful, but it was stinging. No one there was casually comfortable. Well, he called me, and he wanted me to support him in his grievance. Grievance. And I didn't give it to him. Instead, I encouraged him as a brother without demeaning or embarrassing him, but encouraging him, don't waste your rebuke. I think those are the words I used. <clears throat> don't waste your rebuke. He did. He wasted his rebuke. We saw so many things come out of him that were absolutely horrifying, shocking. One of the saddest things... <laughs> I've ever seen as a Christian. Never want to see it again. This nobleman may not have got the word that he wanted to hear, but he does have a word from Christ. If all you know today is a rebuking Christ, then love him. Honor him. Believe and trust his word. Say with Job, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Matthew Henry said this. Those whom Christ intends to honor with his favor, he first humbles with his frowns. Those whom Christ intends to favor Honor with his favor, he first humbles with his frowns. This nobleman was humbled. Uh, here's a valley of humiliation, but Christ is working. And I, I think we see the fruit of Christ's rebuke, not so much in 49, but in verse 50. And let me read the whole section together. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith. Unto him. Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him. And he went his way. Now that's glorious. That's enough to make a Baptist shout. <coughs> Jesus says in 50, verse 50, Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. Now we have six words spoken by Christ here. And the way I see it, it's divided three and three. 
we have the first three words, go thy way. And then we have the second three, thy son liveth. And I believe that there is a simplicity to that that is brought out in the King James Version. And I appreciate that here. <clears throat> there are other versions that may say this a little bit different. And there are some versions that we can agree with, but I don't want them right now. Just give me these six words. Don't add any to it. Don't take any away from it. These six are enough. Go thy way. Thy son liveth. This word of Christ is both a command and a promise. The first three are a command. Go thy way. And the second three are a promise. Thy son liveth. Both the command and the promise require faith. Without faith, this man is not leaving. But now he's commanded. Without seeing a miracle, go your way. Not that I'm tired of you, but go home. Go. You have the promise. Go. I've given you my word. Go thy way. Thy son liveth. Who could say that? Who could declare that? What a word from Christ. What a promise. Thy son liveth. Brethren, I know that those words specifically have to do with the healing of the nobleman's son, but that's salvation right there. This is our salvation. Jesus speaks the word, and it's done. It's his word, his word, and his word has power. It has power to heal. It has power to cleanse. His word has power over the wind and the waves. The disciples said after he calmed the wind and the waves, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I thought about that hurricane. That if he wanted to, could have just stopped it. Peace, be still. <laughs> and it'd be a calm. He does that in our lives. <laughs> there may be a hurricane in our lives, and he says, peace, be still. And the waves are calm, and the wind is calm. His word has power to save. Ezekiel 16.6 says, And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, When thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, When thou wast in thy blood, live. One word. Psalms 33.9, For he spake, and it hesitated. Oh, wait a minute. That's the wrong version. I need a sign. You can laugh. <laughs> that was funnier than what I said. Okay. <clears throat> Psalms 33, 9. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. That's the God we serve. Who can resist his will or stop his word? He has all power. He has all authority. Second Corinthians said, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Psalms 107 says, He, he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. 
Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Bear with me just a little bit longer. I'm almost done. He sent his word and healed them. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him and went his way. He believed, and he went his way. Brethren, something has changed here. Something's different about this nobleman. This isn't the same man that came to Jesus. Well, we know technically it is, but spiritually it's not. He, he's been changed. He's been made new. Jesus had told him before, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. And now this man is on his way home, believing the word that Jesus had just spoken to him. And he, he hasn't even seen his son yet. There are no signs or evidence that what Jesus said is true. But this man believes Christ, and he believes his word. And he is not going home with his head hanging down. He is fully confident that what Jesus said he will do, and he's going home joyful. Someone may ask, where's where's thy burden? Where's your burden? It's gone. The burden is gone. The worry, the fear, the fretting over his son is gone. He's not even home yet, and his steps are lighter. I am sure that on the way home, he heard the birds singing. And perhaps they were singing this song. I won't sing it. (laughs) Singing I go along life's road, praising the Lord, praising the Lord. Singing I go along life's road road for Jesus has lifted my load I believe that this man went home with a peace and contentment that he had never known before verse 51 and as he was going down his servants met him and told him saying thy son liveth isn't that great this noble man is headed back home and his servants who have just seen a marvelous recovery of this child are filled with gladness and they are going to meet their master to tell him the good news that they don't think he even knows and the servants testify to the father the very words that christ spoke thy son liveth verse 52 then inquired he of them what hour when he began to amend and they said unto him yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him this is remarkable this isn't just well the boy's getting better I think the servants themselves are amazed the fever is gone it's gone he's well the boy is well this healing is as though Christ had been there personally And being present with the child has laid his hand upon him for him to recover. But Christ wasn't there physically. And his father knows, the father knows this. The father had heard Jesus say, go thy way, thy son liveth. And the words of Christ were to him as good as if Christ had been there and touched his son himself sir come down ere my child dies so the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which jesus said unto him thy son liveth and and himself believed and his whole house glory i say glory to god this nobleman went to christ out of great need for his son who had a great fever and was at the point of death but he got something more than healing for his son. This nobleman and his house believed on the word of Christ, and they were saved. What joy must have filled that house when the father returned? 
He left a son who was at the point of death, but he comes home to a child that's well. And they are all not only filled with thankfulness for the child, but filled with the joy of the Lord's salvation. I pray that we could learn from this. Do we have great need tonight? We have a great God. His arm is not so short that it cannot save. All his creation shows his handiwork. Do we know him? Do we honor his word? If you do not know Christ tonight, then go to him. Run to Christ. Pray. Seek him. Take hold of him by faith. And when he rebukes you, (laughs) hold on. Accept his frowns. Wait for his smiles. Jesus has promised not to quench the smoking flax or break the bruised reed. That is a promise. What will we do with Jesus tonight? Many of his disciples, it says, turn back and follow him no more. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered, may we answer the same way tonight. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Amen. Could you stand, please, for the benediction? Thank you for bearing long with me. First Peter, but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed.